Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I am delighted to talk again to Professor Overmeer Anjum. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Overmere, for those who don't know, is Imam Khattab Endowed Chair of Islamic Studies at the University of Toledo in the United States, and he obtained his PhD in Islamic history. And he's the author of this book uh, entitled Politics, Law and Community in Islamic Thought, The Timaean Moment, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. And I do highly recommend this book. Today, uh, Overmere has kindly agreed to discuss the contentious issue of rebellion in Islam. Does, is, does the Islamic tradition require Muslims to give virtually unconditional obedience to even the most tyrannical of rulers? Or is armed rebellion permissible against a tyrant? What does Islam actually teach? So would you like to introduce us to this subject, sir? Sure. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Paul, again, for having me and, and, and uh, for uh, your interest in this topic, which uh, is really becoming uh, crucial as uh, authoritarian states take over uh, throughout the world, particularly the Muslim world, and use religious clerics and religious traditions to serve their narrow interests. And... Uh, in that uh, effort, uh, unfortunately, Islam is being conscripted, uh, which is ironic and tragic because Islam has throughout history been a religion of justice. Uh, yeah. So let me start with this anecdote. You know, when I was uh, uh, an undergraduate, oh God, an embarrassingly long time ago, <laughs> um, mm. Uh, I had a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison who would teach uh, world religions, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the way he taught was he would take every religion and uh, read deeply in, uh, into its sources and come out with one thing that he thought the religion was about. Mm. So I remember when he read, when he, when he would talk about Judaism, it was um, community. Mm -hmm. The central value of Judaism was community. Mm -hmm. uh, when, he, when he would talk about um, Christianity, it was charity. And when it, it was Islam, he right. would say, this religion is all about justice. Oh. And um, it's not very hard to see why he would come to that conclusion. Mm. You read the Quran, you read the, the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, you, you, you look at his own career, his own conduct, you look at early Muslims, you look at Islamic law, and you find Islamic justice or, or, or justice to be such a crucial idea that pops up again and again in every field 
Uh, and the very idea of law, right, is so central to Islam, and, and law is about, ultimately, you know, it's about justice, that mm-hmm. God cares about, not that you pray ritually to him, which is, of course, very important, but that God cares that you are just to his creatures. Mm. Um, so, it's ironic, therefore, that in over the course of the 20th century, in particular, um, some of the theological moves that have uh, taken place in the wake of, of course, colonialism, and then uh, after colonialism, the nominally free nation states, which are um, in some ways even more deeply colonized than um, the colonial Muslim world of the 19th century. Um, and um, a theology of domination, a theology uh, 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 that might and is might is right kind of theology has emerged. Right. And um, at the center of that theology is the idea that I want to talk about today, which is that no matter how unjust and how tyrannical the ruler, Muslims, by their creed, by their aqidah, not merely as a matter of one possible opinion or prudence, mm. but uh, creedally bound never to rebel and always to obey, and in fact, um, not even protest peacefully, right? So uh, this theology has gone to the point I, that uh, it, it says that even peaceful public protest is against, um, uh, against Islam. And that's what I want to talk about today, right. uh, taking you through all the sources uh, that Fantastic. are recalled. Good. Just what we, just what we need to, to go through. So thank you for this. Okay, wonderful. So let me... show you my slides because that will help some of the complex materials that I can now just mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah. Um, Islamic views and rebe- rebellion against unjust Muslim rulers. So each of these uh, uh, adjectives is important. This is, we're talking about ad- uh, unjust Muslim rulers, so not non-Muslim rulers and not just Muslim rulers. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do briefly. I'm going to go over contemporary claims about rebellion being always prohibited um, as a matter of Sunni creed in particular. Uh, Summary response to those claims, and then I will examine the Hadith evidence. uh, The reason we will look at the Quran evidence, but we'll talk really about why there isn't any direct uh, evidence for or against it in the Quran. Um, And... Um, we'll look at the Hadith evidence and then the companions' views and the early imams of the first two centuries. Mm-hmm. When, the word, when I, uh, I use the word imams, uh, of course, uh, uh, Shia uh, use the word imams in a more particular sense than the Sunnis do. And I will be talking primarily about the Sunni perspective. And from Sunni perspective, the imams are uh, the scholars who are followed. Um, they're not infallible, but they are uh, followed by the vast majority of Muslims. And, uh, of course, the four 
schools of Islamic uh, of Sunni Islam come to mind, the four schools of jurisprudence. But I, I'm using the word more broadly yeah. as the leaders, including the, including those four, but also ones that they followed as well, and, and ones that are generally referred to when we are talking about jurisprudential discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will look at some major figures, such as uh, Imam al-Juwaini and Ibn Taymiyyah and al-Mawardi, uh, rahimahumullahu ajma'in, uh, in order to look at how this doctrine develops later in history. So first, let's start with contemporary claims about rebellion. Um, I'm going to summarize those claims into these six points. First, that any rebellion of subjects, you know, of course, in the modern, the modern word would be citizens, but given how um, the modern world, uh, the modern, particularly Arab world works, there is really no uh, effective citizenship. So all re- any rebellion of subjects or citizens against rulers is prohibited in Sunni Islam. Uh, This prohibition includes unjust, tyrannical Muslim rulers. This prohibition is part of the Aqidah or the agreed-upon creed of Ahl-Sunnah. This is a statement recently made by the American preacher Hamza Yusuf. Uh, Number four, the prohibition extends to unarmed protesters. Uh, For instance, in contemporary Egypt, not too long ago, unarmed protesters uh, who are called dogs of hell, uh, which is a term, of course, as uh, uh, as it sounds, a condemnation, but also as a particular reference to uh, a very uh, deeply uh, feared and hated sect uh, in early Islam called the Kharijites. Um, and fatwas were given to shoot to kill them in hundreds and thousands, if necessary, over a thousand people were killed at Rabah uh, with the blessing of uh, some of these clerics, uh, Ali Juma being uh, the most prominent one. Uh, in UAE and the Wahhabi Saudi establishment, uh, that is these Gulf states, um, it, it has been a longstanding uh, uh, orthodoxy, if you will, of the 20th century that advice to rulers can only be given in private, otherwise it causes dissension. Um, so do not publicly protest injustice and, and do not talk to rulers in a way that might put them off, uh, might displease them. Rulers uh, must always be pleased uh, even when you're disagreeing with them, so do so in private and, and very politely. Uh, also, one thing that, and this, this uh, uh, advice has been uh, given uh, in a very politically uh, public way uh, to defend UAE's normalization with Israel and whatnot by uh, Sheikh bin Baya, who is a, a Mauritanian cleric working for and within uh, in United Arab Emirates these days. Uh, and finally, the sixth point the sixth point uh, I want to make is that over the, it was the Saudi Wahhabi establishment that was the 20th century pioneers of this never rebel, never question views uh, as being the only acceptable orthodoxy. Um, but even there is a shift even in that 
uh, over the course of the 20th century, because pre-1990s, uh, this idea, never rebel, was based on a religious mission, the religious Wahhabi mission to, to protect monotheism. So in other words, it wasn't that you're protecting the rulers, but rather you are, uh, you know, if you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Accepting the rulers for who they are, even if they're imperfect, because they're protecting religion. Mm. But in the recent incarnation of this um, uh, with Binbaya and, and, uh, and company, in fact, you are protecting a secular state. You're protecting just the ruler and his family, mm. uh, regardless of um, their religious credentials, which you, which you don't question and which are not brought forth at all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in other words, this doctrine has become secularized in the 20th, in the late 20th and early 21st century. Rather. So, these are the claims that I will be talking about today. Um, my summary rebuttal of these extreme status claims, I'm calling them status claims, and this is deliberate because they're often uh, seen by, uh, you know, people, by well-meaning students of Islamic history as quietist claims. But uh, in fact, there is nothing quietist about them. They're very politically activist. They are, in fact, supporting political action on the part of uh, the state uh, in order to suppress a regime, in, in suppress um, uh, dissidents, and uh, in fact, start wars all over the world and support wars. So they are very politically activist. But rather, they are, uh, the crucial thing about them is that they are, uh, they are statist extremism. Um, meaning that the state is ultimately, is, is entirely unquestioned uh, authority. It says it is the authority of Islam. Uh, and because there are many states, effectively what you have is all of these states that are claiming the authority of Islam, you must submit to them as a matter of religious creed. Um, now, I will claim that uh, there is no precedence in Islam for this extremist statism uh, or even its more moderate 
for its more moderate versions, there is a disagreement. So you could never say that this is part of the Aqidah, part of the Masonic Creed. Uh, but when it comes to this extreme statism, there is no uh, precedence for it. In fact, it goes against um, everything that we know from the Quran and the Sunnah and from the Islamic tradition. Um, in the tradition, we will show that the prohibition against rebellion is not general, but limited in the very hadith reports that are cited, uh, which we'll discuss below. Um, it's limited to Muslim rulers who establishes prayers and all pillars of religion and does not commit clear unbelief. Um, but also there is some ambiguity there of whether, what does it mean to establish all religion, pillar, pillars of religion um, and uh, you know, does this mean establishing the book of Allah, which includes justice and so on? So uh, there has been a uh, very deep and healthy discussion and, and, and disagreement in, among Muslim jurists throughout on this question, which we'll talk about briefly. If the ruler is deemed to be just and upholds Islam, rebellion is prohibited by consensus, which of course, um, those who are rebelling may think that this is unjust, but it should be, it, it, and, and therefore th that's how they justify their rebellion. And there are in fact very strict laws for that of how people like that could be dealt with by a just imam. A just imam who is confronting rebels who are mistaken, uh, in fact, still has a lot of responsibilities toward them that you will find in books of Islamic jurisprudence uh, mm -hmm. under uh, chapters of Ahkam al-Bughat or how to deal with rebels. So in other words, the idea that even if you are a just ruler and the rebels are entirely unjustified, uh, you do not open fire at them and don't shoot to kill, right? Um, uh, finally, in Islamic tradition, if the ruler is tyrannical, there are three opinions on the rebellion, uh, on, on rebellion against such a uh, tyrannical ruler. One, it is permissible, and some would say even an obligation. And this is an opinion that is um, that can be derived from the actions of some of the companions, many of the companions rather, uh, but also some of the classical scholars. We'll talk about Imam al-Jawaini in this regard. Um, Number two, it is permissible if ruler can be unseated without more bloodshed than what the ruler is causing. So in other words, there is a weighing of benefit and harm um, and feasibility as well as benefit. Uh, and if you will, Muslim jurists um, taking their cue from the Quran and the Sunnah always, always want to minimize bloodshed. Mm. Uh, if that means tolerating a moderately bad ruler, for instance, so long as they're doing largely good, do so. So that's the spirit of the school. Now, this is Abu Hanifa's school. What I will argue is that Imam Abu Hanifa's own opinion, rahimahullah, is closer to the first one. Um, but um, we'll also uh, we'll talk about those details a little bit later. Mm. Finally, the third opinion is that it is impermissible and that's the opinion that we have, that we know today as the only possible opinion, but in fact, it is a relatively late opinion. Um, and even those great Imams who have um, defended this opinion, like Ibn Taymiyyah, they 
clearly explicitly state that this is not always and not the only opinion and some of the great Salaf and the Sahaba had uh, the other opinions. Right. Okay. Um, so on the Quran, as I said, there is no direct evidence in the Quran, but generally a proactive attitude towards the use of force for justice. Quran is talking in a society where there is no established central authority. The Prophet ﷺ is the one establishing that authority. But nevertheless, um, when issues like great injustice uh, right, are mentioned, when one group uh, unjustly attacks the other, um, here is the Quranic guidance in Surah Al-Hujurat. And if two factions among the believers should fight, then make peace between them. Uh, the word iktatalu is, is not just necessarily, you know, hand-to-hand combat, uh, or rather this, this isn't necessarily just a fight, but one that involves arms and, and killing. But if one of them oppresses the other, then fight against the one that oppresses until it returns to the ordinance of Allah. So the word oppression here, which is a translation of the word baghat, Bara, Bari, uh, rebellion. <clears throat> Here, the Quran is saying that you should uh, assess which of the groups of Muslims that are fighting is just. And so the key word is justice and oppression. When you go against justice, you become an oppressor. And the Quran doesn't say, well, sit and wait. The Quran doesn't say, be quiet. The Quran doesn't say pray to pray to God, pray to me to see you know what to do. But the Quran says join the one that is just against the one that is uh, rebelling and transgressing. Hmm. But of course, start by first trying to make peace between them. So peace is always a priority. But of course, in real life, doesn't always happen. So if the fighting and oppression continues, then you join the one that is fighting for justice. Uh, and then until it returns to the ordinance, to the hukum or, uh, of Allah, to the command of Allah. And if it returns, then make peace between them in justice and act justly. Two words for justice, adil and pistol. Uh, and Allah loves those who act justly. So this is, uh, there are some other verses in the Quran, but effectively this is the, um, the ethos of the Quran. Justice is very important in that you need to sometimes use uh, arms to, to secure it. Now, to the hadith reports, uh, which are much more numerous and much more complex on this question. Um, so what I have done here is I have listed all the major authentic reports. There are uh, many inauthentic reports on these questions um, precisely because they were politically so weighty that people um, who were trying to please the ruler or the leader on their side tended to fabricate reports. That's why it's very important that each of these reports, uh, th that we don't employ those reports that sort of, um, uh, you know, derail our discussions because they, they enter into uh, other just uh, later uh, politically um, 
politically charged uh, rulings. These are all traditions that Sunni scholars uh, accept. They're found in main Sunni traditional uh, 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 corpus, and mostly in Bukhari and Muslim, and some in the Musnad of Ahmed. But I will not go into those details. Um, what I have given here is given the Arabic, uh, a little bit of Arabic, which in Arabic is called taraf, uh, a part of the hadith which you can use to search uh, and find the, or, the original. So here are the hadith. Um, in Islamic hadith uh, science, as, as I'm sure you, you, you know, uh, hadith is typically um, known by the Sahabi or the companion who narrated the hadith. So I have given on the left, the companion who narrates the hadith. There may be other down the chain, many other narrators from that Sahabi, but that's how the hadith is recognized. Uh, in the left um, list, you will find the hadith that are against rebellion or that appear to be against rebellion. Um, and the gist of those hadith is do not rebel if the ruler continues to establish prayers. In another narration, do not rebel until you see uh, in the rulers uh, in conduct clear unbelief. Um, and in another narration, uh, do not ever be pleased with an oppressive ruler. Do not support them, but do not take up arms against them if they pray and fast. So here, uh, this is the prayer, uh, a fasting is, in included, meaning uh, that this isn't, it's not just about the prayer, but rather what is being referred to is something else, meaning that they are establishing prayer and fasting, they're establishing the religion of Allah. Um, and then uh, in, in the second line, the hadith of Rabadat ibn Samit, uh, you'll find that a relatively high, this is the highest bar that's given, which is that until they commit clear unbelief. Mm. Um, so you could say that establishing prayer is one bar and clear unbelief is another bar. And, you know, we could talk about that. Um, and the, uh, in, the, in the next hadith, in Anas ibn Malik's hadith, which is both in Bukhari and Muslim, obey your imam, even an Abyssinian slave, which was seen, this was seen, Abyssinian slaves were seen as slaves. They were brought into Mecca um, uh, as outsiders. And the Meccans would consider outsiders as the least likely to become, or Meccans and Medinans would see outsiders as a least likely candidate for leadership. The prophet is saying, even such a person, an outsider comes so long as they're ruling by the book of Allah, accept them. Um, Ibn Abbas, uh, said, uh, his narration says, whoever, if you hate something from your commander, be patient. And the reason commander is important is because sometimes the prophet is simply giving out instructions to uh, the, um, the uh, groups that he's dispatching for particular tasks. And he calls one of them their commander. Um, and he says, look, if your commander who is going out to do some recon work or something, if he does something that you don't like, don't start fighting with each other. So it's a very sort of practical, pragmatic command. Hmm. Um, so these are the five main hadith wordings that appear in favor of what we may call quietism. And then there's a sixth one, the hadith of Hudayfat ibn Yaman, 
radiyallahu uh, um, which is sort of a curveball, as I will say, because it says something very strong, which is that obey your ruler, even if he beats your back and takes your wealth. Mm. So all of a sudden, uh, as you will see, especially when we look at the hadith on the right side, this hadith seems to be uh, a kind of obsequious uh, submission that is completely off uh, the, the rest of the, uh, the traditions and uh, against, uh, seemingly against it, but we'll talk about that later. Now look at the hadith on the right-hand side. All of the hadith are in authentic compilations that um, seem to suggest a positive attitude toward um, rebellion or at least the use of force in correcting what has gone wrong. So Ibn Mas'ud, Abdullah Ibn Mas'ud's narration, no obedience to anyone who disobeys Allah. Uh, Ibn Umar has a similar hadith, no obedience. Now, no listening and no obedience is a phrase that is used not merely as in, you know, uh, I am your servant, uh, but I will, you know, respectfully disagree with this particular command, but rather when you say la means I have no, you have no authority over, over me. Right. Um, now, this is something that can be disputed. It's a matter of interpretation, but often this is how the uh, Arabs use the word, which means that um, if the ruler is disobeying God, then their political authority can be challenged. At least this is one interpretation of this hadith. Similarly, the hadith of Sa'id al-Khudri, uh, whoever sees an evil, change it by force or by tongue or by heart. And doing just by heart is the least of faith you can have. Beyond this, there is no faith. Uh, the hadith of Jabir ibn Abdullah and Tariq ibn Shihab and many other narrations. This is a very important hadith that the greatest jihad or martyrdom uh, is that you command and forbid an oppressive ruler in front of him publicly and are killed as a result. There are many narrations of this hadith from different narrations, different companions, which means the prophet would repeat this. Um, so the highest form of jihad, highest form of martyrdom is to speak truth to power. Mm -hmm. Do so publicly. Ubadat uh, ibn Samit, hadith that says, La ta'ata liman asallah, similarly the, the theme that has gone above. And then the very important hadith of Abu Bakr, uh, which is that when people see an oppressor and do not do anything to stop him, then God will punish them all with the oppression. Um, the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud, um, when you see an oppressive authority, oppressive ruler, and you do not take force, uh, fight against them, um, right? Or, or rather, the, the, the wording goes this way, then whoever does something with their hands, meaning uh, fights them, is a believer. Whoever speaks out against them is a believer. Whoever, uh, you know, feels 
uh, repulsion in their heart because they're not able to do anything else is a believer, but beyond that, there is no faith. Um, and uh, finally, another hadith of the Levin Amr, whoever fight, uh, dies fighting uh, to protect their wealth or their property is a martyr. So the very commonsensical thing that you have to protect what you have, as opposed to, of course, the hadith that seems like, you know, you can, your ruler can beat you and take your wealth and you're not, uh, you're not supposed to react. So this is the, um, the big picture of the hadith traditions. Here I summarize them. Uh, the pro-rebellion, uh, so, sorry, pro-quietism hadith on the left that suggest if the rulers are tyrannical, never be pleased with them, nor follow them, right? So never join them, but do not take up arms against them. So long as, and this so long as is, it becomes tricky because some hadiths say, so long as they are just praying, which means the bar couldn't be very high, or praying and fasting and doing all the, 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 the religious things, uh, the main pillars of, of religion, which is bar is a little high, do not exhibit clear unbelief. This is perhaps the lowest bar, which is that so long as they're not, um, you know, actively committing unbelief. And then there is um, another uh, version of the narration which, which places the bar high, which is obey uh, even an uh, in outside ruler so long as they establish the Book of Allah. So this is a high bar, right? This is that not just that they're not unbelievers, but that they're in fact establishing the Book of Allah. Now, all of these, these, these different types of hadith, what they do is they, it is the scholars who have to judge which of these is really meant and when is the Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, simply using a simple language to explain to people what is meant. So it does establishing prayer, meaning establishing the Book of Allah. Or um, perhaps uh, all it means is not being clearly a non-Muslim. So all of these are up for discussion, which is why, and this is not uncommon in Hadith tradition. Anybody who does uh, fitta or does jurisprudence knows that scholars then have the burden to, um, to reconcile what seems like differing opinions. Mm -hmm. On the right-hand side, as I said, uh, you seem to have much more uh, activist uh, hadith which require removing of evil and fighting injustice actively. Okay, now on in this list here, le on the left-hand side, what I'm calling a curveball, which is an American phrase for something that you don't expect, which okay. is obey the ruler, even if he beats you back, your back and takes your wealth. What do you do with this kind of, this hadith? I have done a little bit of research on that hadith. There are three main narrations of the hadith. And when you look at the context of the hadith, um, in fact, it becomes clear that the Prophet ﷺ is talking about, um, you know, he's talking about an extreme kind of emergency situation. So where, he, where uh, Hudayfa Ibn al-Yaman is asking the Prophet about what is going to happen in future, the end times, the worst times that are going to happen. So the Prophet said, this will happen. Then what to the Huzaifa says, what should I do? Well, or this happens, then what should I do? And then when 
uh, exhausting, having exhausted all other options that you couldn't fight such a bad ruler. Um, things have gone really bad. It's nearly end times. Then you find one ruler who may not be the, the kindest and the most uh, fair, but who is upholding God's rule, God's norms. Then the prophet said, join such a ruler, even if he beats your back and take your wealth. Right. Right? So it is in that kind of emergency situation, those kinds of exceptional circumstances, mm. that uh, almost end times apocalyptic tradition in right. which the next step after that is um, the Antichrist appears. Gosh. So that's why I don't think that this hadith is uh, should be, uh, I don't question the authenticity of the hadith because I've studied it. And, I, you know, that's, again, this will be a, an entirely different uh, a lecture just on that hadith and its various narrations. Uh, but um, this hadith is about uh, emergency situations when you find that end times are near. Hmm. Now, um, let's look at, which is what all jurisprudential schools do in one way or another, when they find that there is a complex set of commands by the Prophet Wasallam. you look at the, 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 uh, the conduct of the companions, of how they understood those commands. Mm. Well, um, here's what we find. For Abu Bakr's uh, first sermon, he says, radiallahu anhu, Obey me if I obey God, not otherwise. So if he is disobeying God, he leaves quite a wide leeway in what people could do. In the case of Umar, there are anecdotes such as uh, where Umar would say, what would I do if I went astray? Not that I left Islam, but I went astray as in I was no longer just, I was no longer fair toward you. And uh, in one case, the response is, we will take up arms and straighten you up. And Omar praises God for giving him uh, followers, Muslims, uh, who will correct him if he went astray. Uh, Uthman, radiallahu anh, who is surrounded for weeks by rebels, never uses these traditions to say that you guys have all become unbelievers and that the Prophet said, never question anything. Rather, Uthman spent a long time explaining uh, where his policies were either misunderstood or what he would correct. All of this stuff is, you know, it found in Hadith literature uh, and in, in Tariq literature. Um, tariq is history. So in historical literature and Hadith literature, all of this is well established. Uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anh, uh, the fourth caliph, is the most important and relevant figure in this case because it is in his time that most rebellions took place, uh, he never cites any of these traditions against any of the rebels. Um, let's look at the first civil war when Ali is uh, fighting uh, Talha, Zubair, and Aisha, radiallahu anhum. So can I just clarify, so I just jump in there uh, in your lecture, but uh, you say Ali never cites these traditions against any of the rebels. The question naturally arises, why didn't he cite these? If these traditions are authentic traditions of the prophet and they are clearly pertinent, well, they, they might well be pertinent. What, why apparently did he not cite them? I don't understand. Yes. Um, but if you could hold that question 
okay. uh, until the end, because there is going to be, we're going to have to f- frankly address that question head on and think about that. Okay. Right? Because oh. it's not just Ali's conduct. Uh, you look at this, um, uh, this Ma'arikat uh, al-Siffin, or rather Jamal, um, the first one, Talha Zawair Aisha, these are all old friends and relatives who, who end up fighting. Uh, in this case, most uh, companions side with Ali, many com- side with Talha Zawair and Aisha, and once they are defeated, um, then uh, the Siffin comes when a uh, much bigger combat against uh, Muawiyah, uh, a, a minority sides with Muawiyah, majority sides with Ali, and a third uh, and, a, and another uh, an important small minority um, stays neutral. I shouldn't say how small. Um, there is some studies recently that shows that majority of the Sahaba sided with Ali, but how small is the minority that stayed uh, neutral? I haven't seen a good study. Nevertheless, um, these people. Uh, the Sahaba, such as Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Ibn Umar, and a number of important companions, stayed neutral, mm. right? And it is their opinion, the staying neutral, that becomes, of course, for later uh, uh, Sunnis, this becomes the probative opinion, the only opinion. But early Sunnis understood that this was just one of those various options. Um, but, and here is, here is the great surprise, to the extent that we have an idea of what these people were saying to each other and how they were arguing with each other, no one reports citing any prohibition by the Prophet ﷺ says that, look, you know, the Prophet said, once you have an imam, do not rebel. Yeah. Right? Similarly, in the next case, um, two, three decades later, we have the first, uh, the civil war of Al-Hussein, uh, the second civil war, rather, of Al-Hussein, uh, rebelling against Yazid in the 60s and uh, yeah, in the 60s of Hijra, um, and then Abdullah ibn Zubayr rebelling against Yazid. Many companions that were alive at this time, um, Ibn Umar, Ibn uh, uh, Abbas, uh, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, uh, of course, uh, he himself rebelled, uh, and Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, a tabi'i, not a not a uh, companion, but nevertheless, a number of these people are trying to dissuade Al-Hussein from leaving Mecca to go to uh, Kufa, right? Against a sitting imam, against a sitting leader, Yazid. None of them cites these hadith. None of them says, look, your grandfather, O Hussein, your grandfather said, never rebel against a ruler. None of them says that. All of them use prudential uh, reasons that these people in Kufa are not reliable. Don't go to them. They will betray you. I mean, would Al Hussein have dismissed his grandfather's clear, agreed upon, well known command? Um, now, later and younger companions begin to cite reports on both sides after the Second Civil War. So, um, as, as shown, I have, uh, you know, in this, if you look at the people who are citing Auf, Auf ibn Malik, Obad ibn Samit ibn Salama, Anas ibn Malik, ibn Abbas, these are all, uh, in fact, not even ibn Abbas, uh, uh, but all of these are relatively companions who lived long and were relatively 
less important compared to the, of course, the, the, the first generation, the, the senior companions, right? So um, this is what, if you will, adds to the uh, wonder, why are they not citing the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, right? In key moments. Mm. And now this is not something that we can necessarily resolve, um, but I think that we could speculate. And I think that my understanding um, as a historian who works in the first century is, uh, as well, um, that is, I look at later periods as well, but I recently completed a book on first century, which hasn't been published yet. Um, my understanding is that none of them understood the, the, the uh, prohibition of the Prophet ﷺ to apply to uh, a blanket prohibition of rebellion against the ruler. They understood the Prophet's command to be about, first of all, the Khawarij, the, the, the rebels who uh, began fighting Muslims and uh, killing Muslims, innocent Muslims, and also, they understood those to be uh, applicable in part to um, if a ruler becomes a clear enemy of Islam, if they, uh, uh, if they abandon the sunnah of the prophet such that Islam is being disfigured, then those prohibitions did not apply. So those prohibitions applied to things like the ruler begins to drink alcohol because this was a very common disease among, among rulers at the time uh, and starts to enjoy personal luxuries which go far beyond what Islamic law prohibits. But you have, uh, the ruler at the same time is applying Islamic law in all parts of, you know, in, in uh, upholding, living by Islam, protecting the borders of Islam. Now, taking up arms against them just for personal, uh, personal um, deficiencies might lead to more bloodshed. Mm. Whereas when the ruler begins to work against the interest of Islam, against the book of Allah, uh, in such a way that people move away from religion, which was Al-Hussein's analysis, right? Al-Hussein would think that what Yazid is doing, even though Yazid was a Muslim, Yazid had led even earlier, had led jihad, in fact, in, uh, uh, earlier, he was a uh, Muslim, um, but a Muslim whose interests were systematically going against uh, the true understanding of Islam that Al-Hussein and the people in Medina in, generally had, in general had. So, uh, when they thought, so what the prophet was talking about was don't take these personal uh, uh, fisp, personal sins as an excuse just to rebel against, because now the prophet is talking to a people who are not used to central government. They're not used to government at all. They are people who take pride in, they write poetry about their freedom, about the anarchy, and the prophet uh, uh, knew uh, that many of these people are going to rebel. This is exactly what happened at the time of Abu Bakr, right? Half of Arabia uh, rebelled against central authority 
not in any kind of principled reason, but because they didn't want taxation or they didn't want uh, the, the, uh, the primacy of Medina over them. So uh, anyway, this is my interpretation, but we can move on back to our topic of um, how did the great Muslim imams, whom all Sunnis see as their authority, how did they understand this? So look at the first century, the major rebellion uh, uh, in uh, the first century. I guess I should say something about late first century. There are three main centers of Islam, Islamic scholarship of, of uh, the great uh, leaders where companions as well as their main students and, uh, and leaders are, are situated. There is Iraq, there's Medina, and there's Syria. Um, Iraq, the center of Iraq, Kufa, um, is one of the most important and the largest cities in, in the Islamic world. And then you have Medina, which is, of course, important um, because uh, of the legacy of the Prophet ﷺ, the family of the Prophet ﷺ and, the, and of the main companions. And, and then Syria, which is where the Umayyads, the actual power, is situated, Damascus. Now, most jurists and Hadith scholars of Kufa and many of Medina, including leaders of Sunnis that today we cite as evidence when taking this or that jurisprudential opinion, they supported the rebellion of people like Ibn al-Ash'ath uh, against al-Hajjaj. Hajjaj is no doubt established a governor of um, uh, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, uh, the Marwanid Umayyad leader, and uh, Abdul Rahman ibn al-Ash'ath rebels against him, and many of these scholars of Kufa uh, join that uh, rebellion. In some reports, it is said, somewhat exaggeration, that none of the scholars remain behind. Mm. None of the Qurra remain behind. Now, of course, you know, this is, this was perhaps political propaganda, but then nevertheless, we know many important uh, scholars rebelled. Um, now, Hajjaj had not committed kufr. He was not an unbeliever, and he had not stopped praying. We know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the imams of Ahl al-Bayt, of course, rebelled. Um, but Abdullah, son of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, the great caliph, joined some of those rebellions. None of these people thought that the prophet had a blanket um, prohibition against rebellion. Now, these rulers that they're rebelling against are, in fact, much more legitimate in many ways. They are much more Islamic. They are, in fact, protecting the borders of the Muslim world and upholding the Sharia. Not only that, people like the Marwanids are in fact, Islamicizing the bureaucracy. Um, so they are far more Islamic than any rulers um, today, certainly, um, and, 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 and even throughout history, arguably. So my point is that this, um, in the second century, when Islamic tradition sort of comes together and the great imams, uh, this is when the great imams emerge, um, most people seem to be okay with rebellion. Mm -hmm. Imam Ibn Hazm, a 5th century uh, prodigy, one of the greatest independent scholars, um, says, the Ummah is agreed on the obligation of commanding right and forbidding wrong without any exception. Some of Ahl-Sunnah, all of the Mu'tazilites, Kharijites, and Zaidi Shia agree that taking up arms for this purpose is an obligation if evil cannot be prevented without it. Um, uh, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, 
And for those of you familiar with the Islamic tradition, Ibn Hajar is a very important reference here because you cannot accuse him of being too early or being influenced by just early stuff. He is, in fact, the cornerstone of late Sunni orthodoxy. He wow. is the great commentator on the Bukhari, a Sahih of al-Bukhari, Fath al-Bari. He says, some rebelled in their zeal for the religion due to the tyranny of the rulers, not their unbelief, but the tyranny of the rulers and their abandoning of the prophet, prophetic sunnah, not unbelief, once again. And they were on the right. Including among these, included among these is Al-Hussein uh, and the Medinans, the people of Medina on the occasion of Al-Harra, who rebelled against Yazid. The Quran reciters of Kufa, who rebelled against Al-Hajjaj, the in the 82 rebellion uh, of the Rahman ibn Ashad, others rebelled for power and such are proper, properly called rebels. Mm -hmm. And elsewhere he notes that rebellion against tyrants was the opinion of the earliest predecessors. That is legitimacy of rebellion, right? Uh, and these are the Arabic quotes that I have for what I have just cited. Abu Hanifa, wow. He supported, so he, he, he's born around 80, 82 and dies in the year 150. He sees these great transformation, transformations in his lifetime. Um, he supported rebellion both against the Umayyads, uh, that is the great rebellion of Zayd ibn Ali um, against uh, Hisham ibn Abdul Malik in the year 122, and against Abbasids, the rebellion of uh, al nafs al-Zakiyah, the famous rebellion in 145, of Nafsa Zakiya and his brother, uh, Nafsa Zakiya being in the Hijaz and his brother Ibrahim, uh, Nafsa Ibrahim being in, in Iraq. They both simultaneously rebelled and Abu Hanifa supported both of them. Hmm. Now, what's interesting is that rebellion for him is not only permissible and he did not call any of them kafir. None of them were unbelievers and none of them stopped praying. Hisham, in fact, is known personally to be a pious caliph. Um, and um, now later Hanafis add the condition that, you know, Abu Hanifa is really supporting rebellion if they are feasible, mm. right? But of course, this is breeding into what, what might happen into the future, whether the rebellion is going to succeed or not. But none of the two rebellions that Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, supported, they succeeded. Both of them were seemed unfeasible. In fact, there are some reports that suggest that he knew they're unfeasible. Hmm. Uh, but he supported them financially and uh, didn't personally join. He was an old man at the time, but he would support his some of his disciples to go and join, and he would financially support them. Uh, Malik, rahimahullah, uh, again, um, Nobody needs to second-guess Malik's authority in the knowledge of tradition. Um, his opinion was, again, uh, the original quote by Al-Qadi ibn al-Arabi, who was quoting the opinion, uh, the Maliki opinion, uh, is that one must support the just leader, be he the sitting ruler or the one revolting against an oppressor. So what matters is justice and not whether you have the power. Right. Um, and he also went one step ahead and said any pledge of allegiance for the ruler that is based on fear and coercion is not valid. Now, of course, these days uh, we don't 
it's not fashionable in later Islam to even believe in any kind of pledge or allegiance or election. God forbid that's democracy. Um, but in reality, for early Muslims, uh, the uh, consent of the ruled was uh, seen as necessary. And uh, if the consent was, uh, was forced, meaning it wasn't true consent, then uh, any such pledge is not um, not valid, and uh, Malik, in fact, was um, physically beaten for giving this fatwa by the Abbasids, uh, but he did not uh, renege from it. Wow. A Shafi'i, um, in his earlier Iraqi school, endorsed the Iraqi pro-rebellion opinion, and some reports have him join a rebellion against uh, Harun al-Rashid, in one in 180s uh, in Yemen, uh, that is year 180 of Hijrah and, and after. But these reports, in other words, uh, Shafi'i then would be the only Imam of the four who actually joined the rebellion. Uh, but these reports are too obscure and contradictory to make a, a solid case. What we do know is that in his earlier actual jurisprudential opinion in Iraq, he was he took a pro-rebellion position. Even Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and this is something that uh, would be uh, shocked to most people who see Ahmed ibn Hanbal as the most anti-rebellion person, but in fact, there is a disagreement uh, reported by Abu Ya'la and Ibn al-Jawzi on uh, whether uh, ibn Hanbal tolerated uh, rebellion. And he, in one report, seems to suggest that uh, it was justified, not against an unbelieving ruler, but against the sitting Abbasids. Uh, Al-Ma'moon uh, and, and his predecessors, who were all believing Muslims, all prayed, and, and Islam was established in their time. Mm. So, um, just to, I guess, really quickly go over how the opinion evolves, uh, Al-Mawardi, now we are moving back two centuries later in early fifth century of Hijrah. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using Hijri centuries. So, instead of thinking about you know, common era, think about time since the, uh, the Hijrah of the Prophet, وسلم, right? Yeah. So in fifth, uh, uh, early fifth century scholar, the, the leading Shafi'i, Ra'is uh, of the Shafi'is, and he was also the judge of judges, Qadi al-Qudat uh, in Baghdad. Um, in, in his famous book, Al-Hakam al-Sultaniyah, and elsewhere, there is a chapter on Al-Hakam al-Bughat in which... Um, a number of conditions are given to declare any opponent of the ruler as a rebel that is, that is legitimate to fight for the ruler. So the, here, these conditions are for the ruler, whether the ruler can go and fight and how can the ruler fight. And those conditions include that those rebels are armed. So unarmed protesters just do not count as rebels at all that not only are they armed because people are generally armed at the time, they have chosen, they have gathered in one place and they have chosen a ruler or chosen a leader to lead their rebellion. And uh, on top of that, they have some that we, some reason, but that they're giving to challenge the ruler because if they don't have this and they're simply killing people, then they're bandits. But if they have a reason by which they're saying that the ruler is unjust, um, uh, and, and so on, then only can the ruler go and fight them and treat them as Bogat. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not free for all for the ruler that anybody who criticizes me, anybody who, you know, uh, uh, has, uh, you know, maybe they have gathered and maybe they have a movement going on, but if they haven't taken up arms, they uh, then then they do not count as rebels. Uh, Al-Juwaini, who comes a century or, or sorry, a generation after Al-Mawardi, uh, or still fifth century um, of Hijra. Al-Juwaini says in his uh, book, Al-Ghiyathi, uh, or Ghiyathul Umam Fil Tiyathul Dhulam, one of the most important and, and, and detailed books uh, written on the subject. Al-Juwaini, of course, is a very important authority, the leading Ash'ari, the, student, the, the teacher of Imam Al-Ghazali, um, whose opinion on this is the most developed opinion, because in his book, Al-Ghiyathi, he imagines the possibility of uh, rulers um, possibility of disappearance of the caliphate and what will happen later and so on and so forth. Al-Juwaini's opinion is that if a ruler becomes unjust, a Muslim ruler, a sitting Muslim ruler, not only unjust and begins to, so, so he's very clear that personal wickedness or personal sins of the ruler do not disqualify him. But let's say this is not personal, but rather public sins are so great that justice is impossible to uphold, that people find that um, the interest, uh, uh, that the ruler's interest and the ruling class's interests are systematically against the, the, the people. Of course, I'm translating in modern language. Then he says, not only should you rebel, but you should not hesitate from rebelling in fear of bloodshed because the bloodshed the ruler is causing and the harm may be much greater. So uh, Al-Juwaini is pro-rebellion. In very, you know, these are very qualified, much more developed conditions than we find in earlier literature. In other words, politically, it's much more mature. Mm. Uh, And finally, Ibn Taymiyyah, the scholars that I study and, and admire very much, he is very clearly against rebellion. Mm. But when he gives his anti-rebellion position, he is very clear that the early Salaf uh, and many of the leaders, many of the Imams, the Sahaba, in fact, held a pro-rebellion opinion. So what is Ibn Taymiyyah's uh, reason for being anti-rebellion? Well, it's really just his political analysis that it never works. Mm. Now, is he right on this? As a historian, I disagree. Uh, we live in a country, I live in a country, United States, which starts with a rebellion against the British. Um, and uh, it is, in many ways, the most prosperous country in human history. So I don't necessarily take his historical analysis uh, to be, uh, you know, to be infallible, but um, he is very clear that, you know, the position that he's adopting is a position that can be disagreed with. And it's a position based on prudence, an analysis of circumstances that he had, uh, that he had analyzed. Anyway, so this is uh, all I have on the rebellion. There is a lot that could be said um, about how the jurisprudential opinion evolves, but I will not go into that. Happy to take any questions and thoughts. Well, thank you very much. An extraordinary uh, survey of the historical uh, uh, the data, the, the Quran, the Sunnah, the companions, uh, 
uh, and and the uh, the founders of the schools and right up to Ibn Taymiyyah, absolutely fascinating. I, I I still find myself a little bit confused. However, the, the companions themselves, it would seem, had different opinions. If I've understood you correctly, there wasn't a uniformity of view, and that's quite disconcerting uh, emotionally, I suppose one might say, because one would wish for uniformity of opinion or uniformity of view. Um, but why did the opinion the, the the companions? Do you think, if one can have an opinion uh, about their views, why did they just seemingly have these divergent views, which mean that we're still perhaps today not absolutely certain which is the correct view uh, um, for us all? Yeah. So I think that in general, uh, the companions agreed on a a number of crucial issues, hmm. but did not dis- did not agree on every issue. And in a sense, later that was seen by the scholars and the ummah as a mercy, because if companions all agreed on one thing, then we would not have a choice but to say this one thing, this must be the true and single and only opinion. Um, But when companions disagreed, perhaps this was to some degree an evidence of the fact that, well, you know, this disagreed at the time of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. On, on less crucial issues, um, and, and sometimes on crucial issues in which the Prophet would correct them. Uh, whether, for example, the famous story where the Prophet says, don't pray, um, or don't pray Asr until you get to hmm. settlement of Banu Qurayla. And uh, some companions uh, prayed because it got late and they thought he was just trying to, uh, you know, make them hurry. And others hmm. thought, no, he actually literally meant don't pray, even if you miss the time of the prayer. So here you have a conflict between general command of praying on time and a specific command of not praying until you get there. And this conflict is resolved by the companions in different ways. And the prophet, that's the most remarkable thing. The prophet does not comment. He doesn't say who is right. Yeah. Um, sometimes leaving people, leaving the Muslims to use their own uh, moral judgment and intellectual uh, understanding, uh, you know, of, of the tradition, that is in some ways the most important um, lesson of the prophet, right? This is why our tradition of jurisprudence became such a rich and such an important uh, tradition. It wasn't simply citing the things that, were, it's not a recipe in other words, right? Mm. It's guidelines often right. um, and their general, uh, sometimes the general uh, 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 goals are given, and, but you are to figure out the way to get there. Mm. So on this question, when the companions disagreed, of course, there is a question of why the first civil war happened, which is not mm. our topic today. I'm happy to talk about it at a different time. Um, but the point is that that civil war happened in which the companions, at the end of the day, they dealt with the civil war without excommunicating each other. Right. right. So I think that that lesson and, and the center of that lesson is Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? The hero, if you will, at the moment mm. is, uh, is the, the fourth caliph, Ali ibn Abi Talib, who is in the worldly politics, he, is, uh, he loses the political battle. He, he wins militarily, but there is no peace in his time and so on and so forth. But when it came to the moral uh, superiority and what Islam became, and I'm talking about Sunni Islam, it is his analysis 
and his conduct during these um, rebellions and during these turbulent times that became uh, the center of Islamic jurisprudence. To give you an example, how you deal with the rebels and the different kinds of rebels, uh, people only look at his conduct because we don't have anything direct from the Prophet or the first three caliphs, right? Only indirect evidence. So Ali radiallahu was the one who, for instance, when he was dealing with the Kharijites, mm -hmm. uh, rebels who are left and right killing other Muslims, he dealt with them differently than when he dealt with Talha and Zubayr and Aisha radiallahu anhum, right. that he hated fighting them. And when, when he subdued them, he respectfully sent you know, Aisha back to Medina and he made up with the rest. Uh, again, this is a conduct of what do you do when uh, you are fighting other Muslims who are, who is good, whose intention might be good and disagree with them. How do you deal with them? Similarly, uh, on, uh, on the occasion of the battle he had with the Muawiyah at Safin, he accepted to make peace and arbitration, um, whereas other people, uh, some extremists in his group, refused to do so, and that's when Kharijites are born. Yeah. Um, the conduct of uh, Ali on this case, arguing with the extremists, I mean, in some ways, uh, it's really a very important part of Islamic jurisprudence. All of that, all that I do in my work as somebody who does political jurisprudence, political fiqh, if you will, mm -hmm. it would be almost non-existent if non-existent if it were not for the fact that first civil war happened and Ali was there mm -hmm. to represent the Islamic opinion, um, and then the whole idea of there being disagreement among Muslims in which they do not simply excommunicate the others, as happened with the Christians and, and in other places. In fact, you might argue with the Jews uh, between the two North and South kingdoms. In, in, in Islam, this didn't happen. In Islam, uh, the first fitna of the civil war ended with unity, not with complete, uh, you know, sort of dispersion of religion and uh, end of political unity. In fact, in some ways, the best times materially and in terms of unity and civilization start when um, Hassan, uh, the, uh, the elder son of Ali, hands power to Muawiyah in order to make peace. Well, you know, some people see that as a great tragedy. I see that as this is, uh, you have a unique case in religious history when after such a deep division, you have the possibility of coming together through a sacrifice by grandson of the Prophet mm. but a role model for how Muslims can behave in these circumstances without ending the religious community, right? Without uh, complete uh, division and sectarianism in which religion itself is lost. That doesn't happen. No, I mean, thank you for that. But it strikes me, I mean, what one could say that we in an entirely new situation today, but by which I mean that the, the states that exist in the Middle East and elsewhere are not ha, have developed a new uh, power at, based on technology, on armory, on weapons, on the power of the state, its surveillance of citizens, its intrusion into the private realm, which uh, uh, I think is unprecedented in, in history. And the ability to do that and to control and survey populations um, through technology. And I mentioned the weaponry as well. So does it, doesn't it render this whole question of rebellion in, in, in Islam a moot point? In other words, it's kind of almost redundant because the state 
has such overwhelming power now to impose its will. And we saw this in the Arab uprisings, which were ruthlessly suppressed by force of arms. Um, Are we not in a different era now where where these questions no longer, but they have an entirely different kind of paradigm to work with? I mean, so I would say both yes and no. Um, I agree with you insofar as, um, of course, in the modern world, the political uh, powers of surveillance uh, and of large-scale organization have become unprecedented. This, by the way, Muslim scholars have recognized for over a century and done wonderful work over time to, to analysis. You know, sometimes when I'm talking to younger Muslims or people who are involved in Western discourses, they seem to be um, like, you know, refer only to Western literature as if this is a new recognition. But in fact, you find this all the way to the end of the 19th century. People like Rashid Rilla are talking about the power of large corporations and how that changes things. Mm-hmm. And you find this recognition among Muslims who have therefore been wrestling with this issue. Right. And I think it's really important that we in- include the great scholarship of the Muslim world of the 20th century uh, in order to discuss these things. And what people say is that, yes, the, the new state is, uh, is enormously powerful, but in some ways, the early Islamic model of Medina is much more relevant today than it was ever before in the medieval period. In many ways, the ability for people to be much more informed, uh, for the majority of people to be involved in the process of governance and the process of sort of general social discussion of what should happen uh, is possible today in a way that it never was. Mm-hmm. And is this cool? This is actually much more like the Medina of the Prophet وسلم, just at a much larger scale mm-hmm. uh, than the medieval period in which because of uh, size, people simply had to depend on the, the you know, uh, uh, the metropolis, the, the caliphate center, to make those decisions for them because we didn't, you could not convince people's opinions on, on a number of issues. And people were just not literate. Um, so uh, in, in a sense, many things have become possible today uh, that are in fact in harmony with the earlier, the spirit of early Islam. Uh, on the other hand, you, so, so you're right that, look, uh, rebelling against uh, all the powers of the state are, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult, but regime change and political change in the modern world is an extremely common occurrence. Right. It's not rare at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some ways, it is much more common and, uh, you know, perhaps Western democracies are much more stable, but the rest of the world is not. Um, and when I say they're stable, they're stable for 50 years, right? This is not like 500 years that we're talking about. Yeah. So uh, I would say that power change still happens. And the reason it happens, that's what political scientists study, something that I study uh, as well, um, that rebellions usually take place when there is an, a split among the elite, right. when the elite join the people, some part of the elite joins the people, and that still happens. So I wouldn't say that this is all, uh, you know, this is, we live in a different world where where the older world has no wisdom for us. Um, A third thing is that um, the possibility of rebellion, it indicates a profound 
sense of responsibility, an understanding of where political power comes from, right? So it's not the actual act of rebellion, but the, the idea that the people have, in some cases, the right to rebel, that should change the way that the state rules or the, the, the power elite uh, conceive of their uh, rule, right? In, in the case when you can never rebel, as the case with the Wahhabi state, and it's increasingly with the Wahhabi Saudi state being now becoming the norm for the rest of the Muslim world, uh, the Arab world in particular, not actually, by the way, for non-Arab countries, but for the Arab countries, um, this idea that you cannot even protest peacefully, which is a monstrosity, I mean, moral monstrosity to say that you cannot peacefully protest. Um, this gives the ruler the idea that he is God, nearly. That mm -hmm. when it comes to political decision-making, he has, he, now he, what happens is that people in the Gulf, like these rulers in the Gulf, they only have to think about what Washington is going to think, mm -hmm. right? Because they, they, they think that the clerics in their system are going to control the people. And they're going to tell them that, look, if you rebel against the ruler, you're going to burn in hellfire forever. You don't want that, do you? So therefore, um, no matter what the ruler does, you, you effectively worship the state. And the, the attitude of worshiping the state, which is true in Egypt and, uh, and, and, and Syria and elsewhere, the kind of uh, attitude that is, that is demanded of people, um, it's impossible for there to be a good government, an accountable government, a government that cares for the people or religion or more morality, um, you simply cannot have a government that has any sense of responsibility to the people if you think that your power is uh, unquestionable in theory and you, your clerical establishment. And Islam is the very strong power in Muslim societies, despite all the losses of Islamic institutions. Islam as an emotional fact uh, is lived and felt in Muslim societies uh, perhaps more than it was, in fact, in the mid 20th century. And uh, if, if, if that Islam is saying that uh, the ruler is effectively unquestionable, uh, that you cannot protest, um, then you, this, is a, this is a formula for this kind of almost voluntary totalitarianism. Mm, mm. Right? And this is the best way that foreign powers can can use these rulers as puppets yeah it's very convenient obviously for western foreign policy to have uh, uh re regimes or governments which are compliant in that way it makes the world much more easier to manage it seems for in the western for the western uh dominance of the geopolitical situation is obviously uh a very, very significant um, well, I think we, we might draw it to a conclusion, a conclusion there. Thank you very much uh, indeed for it. There's, there's so many other questions one could raise, and I, I fear that we could go on forever. But I, I think uh, for myself, certainly to ponder on uh, much of this evidence, Abu Hanifa and, and Shafi and Maliki, uh, uh, his, his view is very, very interesting and often not, um, at least in my experience, presented very publicly as, a, as, as factors to consider in this conversation about rebellion in Islam. So I'm immensely grateful to you, sir, for your time and your expertise and your, your knowledge. Uh, and um, 
I'm very much looking forward also to see uh, people talking about what you said uh, and discussing it and looking at the evidence and continuing the conversation uh, because it's such an important subject uh, for all of us in the world today. So thank you very much indeed, sir, for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Until next time. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.